Okay, the book of Isaiah. Last week we did an introduction to prophecy. This is um, session number 27 in the Old Testament, for those who are keeping track. Uh, and that includes some introductions, that includes some dual weeks on, um, some, on, on Genesis and other books we spent a couple weeks. Isaiah may be one of those, where we spend a couple weeks. You'll see in the handout, uh, does anybody, oh, we're out of handouts, I apologize. Hopefully everybody got one. Um, did y'all get one? Yeah. Oh, good. They're good. And you got one? Wonderful. Good. So um, you'll see on the front our normal um, spread of five categories, introduction, background issues, outline, message, and theology, and then approaching the New Testament. On the back, you'll see a chart that uh, I basically took from, uh, is slightly adapted from Nancy Guthrie's book, The Word of the Lord. I highly recommend all of Nancy Guthrie's series through the Old Testament if you've, you're not familiar with it. If you're looking for somebody to help you get through chunks of the Bible, if you just are trying to get the biblical theological um, look at a chunk of the Bible, this is um, see, about seeing Jesus in the prophets. Now, she doesn't hit every prophet, but she hits a good number of them. She doesn't hit all the, the minor prophets, but Jonah, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Malachi are all in here. And it's the kind of format where she'll give you a little introduction, and then for each question, she's going to give you a prompt and give you which verses to look at and tell you what to write down. So it's actually like a guided devotional study time, and uh, you go through and answer all these questions. Uh, it's supposed to take you a week to get through the questions before you then, uh, toward the end of the week, move on to the teaching chapter where she gives you great information about um, just, it's a, it's a teaching chapter about what you have just studied and she kind of ties it all together for you at the end of the week. I highly recommend her work. It is, um, it's really good on the scholarship front. It's also uh, incredibly practical and pastoral. Um, I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but it is, it's an incredibly um, helpful book uh, for me as I've been going through the old, these Old Testament series. And it helps you read, she kind of highlights some of the crucial passages uh, within each book. So I'm going to go ahead and pass this one around uh, for you all to look at if you're interested. You could also see some of the notes that I took on Isaiah in there. But this back page is from her chapter. And she, she highlighted how the word behold signals some really important things in the book of Isaiah. Behold, 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 behold. And then what she does is she shows you how all these beholds are fulfilled in the New Testament, in Jesus. So we'll get to that um, maybe tonight, maybe next Sunday. All right. Let's look at the, the front page here. Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. I don't know if y'all have heard that term. Uh, this, this idea that you can see the richness of who Jesus is and his person um, in the book of Isaiah. And uh, John asked me beforehand, he said, are we going to, you know, look at Isaiah 52, 53? And I was like, nah, that's not important stuff. That is hugely important stuff. That, that's the suffering servant where we see he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the incredible detail uh, that Isaiah's prophecy goes to that is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus is, um, is remarkable. So that's part of how you get to see Jesus. Um, we'll get to the servant songs here shortly. 
uh, which also paints a full picture of the person of Jesus. Uh, not full, but uh, uh, for its time, for the, this point of in God's progressive revelation, a uh, very uh, robust picture of the servant. Uh, Isaiah's writings uh, are the most quoted prophetic words in the New Testament. I wouldn't be surprised if the Psalms quoted more as a whole, but for a prophet, um, maybe Deuteronomy, but for a prophet, Isaiah is quoted the most. Uh, and I don't think it's even close. Uh, more about Isaiah's ministry can be found in the historical books in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. So you can read a little bit about his ministry to specific kings. So let's look at some background <coughs> issues. Uh, Isaiah was written by um, Isaiah, son of Amos. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 1. As those who believe that God inspired this word, we look at Isaiah 1.1, where it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Um, you see, this. Uh, we take this very seriously. There has been um, a lot of uh, critical scholarship. It says Isaiah was written by multiple people who claims to be Isaiah. So you have the, the Deutero-Isaiah theory, meaning that there's a second Isaiah. Uh, there's even a theory that there are three Isaiahs, and there may be more. I don't know what's what in, in all these theories. Um, we reject these multiple Isaiahs theories. Uh, a lot of the reasons why people think that it's just impossible for one person to have written this uh, is, uh, some of it is because there are some minor stylistic changes from section to section. Um, frankly, if I were to write... If I were to go back and read what I wrote in high school, I mean, we're only talking 15 years later, the stylistic changes would be massive. It's very possible for one person to have stylistic differences over the course of, of uh, ministry at different times. Uh, but also, um, one of the things they don't like about Isaiah's prophecy is that it's so unbelievably clear. It's like there's no way that's prophecy. That had to have been written after the fact. Or it had to have been written closer to the time. Because there's no way that, that somebody could actually prophesy these things ahead of time. Well, that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? That God is speaking and revealing truth before it happens. And if you have that kind of concern with Isaiah's prophecy about Cyrus down to the name in Isaiah 44, 45... Well, what about when you get to Isaiah 52, 53? There's no way that was written after Jesus. We have proof of it being written hundreds of years before Jesus came. So if you're trying to get rid of supernatural influence in the prophets, you're barking up the wrong tree here. Um, this is God's word through the prophet Isaiah. Um, historically, it's good to know that the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. I did not show you all this timeline last time, um, but it is a resource I'd recommend. It's called Casket Empty. Uh, I had never really seen a helpful timeline of the Old Testament until I got to um, uh, Gordon Conwell. And uh, Dr. Carol Kaminsky, who is uh, the professor of Old Testament at Gordon Conwell, one of their professors, she is the author of this. So Casket um, is an acronym. So, of course, we don't believe Jesus was buried in a casket. But, you know, the, the, the point is, is communicated. Casket, empty. Empty covers the New Testament. Uh, casket covers the Old Testament. Uh, C is creation. A is Abraham. S is Sinai. K is kings. E is exile. T is the temple period. 
And so it kind of helps you outline the Old Testament. It also has the kingdoms. You see where they divide um, right here. Um, and then it shows you where the northern kingdom ends at 722. And uh, the southern kingdom continues uh, into exile and then back into the second temple period. I highly recommend it. You can probably get it for 15 bucks or less. I know I've gotten them on Amazon before. Uh, my only complaint about this is that these are not tracking the same pr proportionally. So uh, the northern kingdom ends at 722, but I think that's actually like back here on the southern kingdom. So that's the only thing that bothers me about this. So you, once you get here, you can't trust these to line up one-to-one, -one, but um, otherwise this is a very helpful tool. So I do highly recommend it. I will also pass this around uh, so you can see what we're looking at here. Uh, is the uh, Isaiah's prophesying during the time that the northern kingdom was being destroyed by the Assyrians. And um, some other just historical context here is King Uzziah died, uh, who uh, was the only king during Isaiah's lifetime. He had reigned for 40-some years at this point. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 1, you, you may know that from the famous throne room um, vision that Isaiah has. In the year that King Uzziah died, that, that's gr that brings great turmoil and anxiety to a nation. Um, if you're worried about um, the election in America next year, imagine more so um, in a monarchy. Where, if you look on this timeline, every king who was... Um, dethroned by being murdered is marked with a certain symbol it's most of them it's lots of them or other people had to kill you know the the people who were to inherit the throne um they killed them so that they could take the throne this happened a lot so in the year the king uzziah died the nation's wondering are we like are we going to disintegrate are we going to have a leader is there going to be upheaval and that gives you a little bit of a glimpse into what um isaiah is speaking into the northern kingdom is falling. Uzziah has died um, in the south. Uh, who are we and what's going to happen? And I think um, if we just look quickly at Isaiah 6, you'll see um, this message that God is speaking into this turmoil. In the year that King Uzziah died, everybody's wondering who's on the throne, who's going to be on the throne, is there going to be turmoil? Well, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. I lifted up. There's one king, and he continues to reign. No matter what happens on the thrones of earth, the Lord reigns. And that's what Isaiah saw. This was a, a vision of comfort um, for, uh, for Isaiah as he spoke God's word to the people in the southern kingdom. Thoughts or questions right now? Yes. Um, when he says, I saw the Lord. Mm -hmm. What would mean? What would that mean to a person who had not seen the fulfillment of Christ? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Is that? I mean, did they all just assume whenever they said, "I saw the Lord," that they were talking about the Messiah? Were they talking about God the Father? Did they not know? Okay, so um, in light of the Deuteronomy six mindset of the Jewish people. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. They understood God and his um, unity as the one true God. Um, typically, when referring to him 
as the one true God, personal God, who has made covenant with his people, it's typically the word Yahweh, which we see written in all caps, L-O-R-D. Or sometimes if it says Lord God, Lord is uh, Adonai, and then God will be all caps rather than Lord. Um, so if it's all caps, it's the word Yahweh. Um, and it is absolutely a, an understanding of um, the one true God. In this case, it says um, it's the word for Lord is not Yahweh, but I don't think... Uh, in fact, I know that this is still referring to uh, the one true God that they viewed as the all-powerful God. Because you get to verse 3 and it says, uh, These um, seraphim were, were, were calling to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they are... Uh, I don't know that Isaiah would have had various members of the Trinity to communicate to his people. So um, so therefore, they're just thinking this is the one true God, Yahweh. Would that, that have been saying. the same with Joshua from this morning? Yes. Yes. Yes, Stephen. Sort of following up on that, um, how, did, how would they have reconciled that with like, the Torah where God's tells Moses, like, you can't see me or you'll die. Yeah. Yeah. I I think they would understand the complexity of the fact that God, though one, can can manifest himself in ways that are um, encounterable. What's that? Less dangerous. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Encounterable. Less dangerous. Um, You know, I I am speaking into a bit of... quite a bit of an, an intellectual and, and just knowledge void for myself. So I don't want to say too much too confidently on these things. Um, but it's definitely once we get to, I mean, because they absolutely understood the Lord God's spirit to be, you know, part, you know, to be deity, but also they're not denying the unity of, of God and the oneness of God. So I, I couldn't tell you the robustness of their theology proper, unfortunately. But here they're envisioning this is the one true Yahweh, almighty creator, uh, sitting on the throne. I just wondered if they made the connection that the Messiah would, would come, and that this could be the Messiah that they're seeing. Mm, mm-hmm. just... I see, I see, yeah. Because obviously he speaks of, of such a, a one, such a servant later. Um, that's a good question. We'd have to go do some research on that. I'm sure they would not have known. Not in the fullness. I mean, of course, because once you see Christ, that's when the fullness of this revelation comes. Um, but perhaps in part, they could have gotten glimpses of that. It is neat to, to think. It, oh, what that does is it drives me to gratitude right now, saying, oh, we can look back and see far more clearly, which makes us long all the more for that day when there won't be any blurry spots. And we'll just look back and say, oh, I finally understand what Scripture was saying on all these all these points. And, and I understand um, who God is in a much fuller sense. Now, we talked about this um, on Monday night at the welcome class, but we still won't understand God in the fullness of his depth ever. I mean, day one, if, if there are days in heaven, how much are you going to learn about God? An infinite amount. How much is there left for you to learn about God? An infinite amount, and you can do that every day for an infinite number of days. Um, that's how vast he is. So, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Other thoughts on this? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, I'll be frank, the book of Isaiah is really hard to outline. Here's one. 
I looked at three or four different resources, and there were three or four different um, outlines for the book of Isaiah. It's, um, you know, strangely, the people who propose that there are two Isaiahs typically uh, put a divide around chapter 33. And nobody else that I read thematically says that there's even a, a break at 33. It's just connected directly, directly to the part before it. So, um, and anyway, this here uh, is just more of a thematic outline. Uh, it's, it introduces the problem and its solution, the problem of Israel's sin. Uh, then there's a discussion of salvation for Israel in, in Davidic terms, talking about the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And then there's David's kingdom uh, universal. And then there's a history of Assyria's end, which is um, prophecy of Assyria's end. And then there's Israel delivered by the servant. And that, so that's where we get into the servant songs for many chapters there. And then all Israel, Jew and Gentile will be saved. And that's under the all powerful um, commanding rule of God is really emphasized there in the last 10 chapters. Uh, I want to remind you from last week, there are three big themes that you'll find in every prophetic writing um, with very few exceptions. Nahum may be one of the few that doesn't offer restoration. But besides that, of the prophets that I have studied, they all have these themes of sin and punishment and restoration. So, in the book of Isaiah, the sin of Israel is where the book starts. Uh, it's talking about the wicked worship and the injustice on the part of the nation and of their leaders. It talks about idolatry and their guilt in chapter 2. And it also talks about the sin of the nations, which is implied throughout. Uh, and once you get to the punishment oracles, which we'll see in chapter 5 and then 24 through 27, uh, you see uh, the, the sins of the nations also woven into that. But the sin of Israel is a big part of um, why punishment is prophesied, um, which makes the prophecy of restoration all the more remarkable. The punishment of Israel comes in uh, Isaiah... Um, excuse me, I misspoke a minute ago. You'll see the sin of the nations implied not in Isaiah 5 and 24 through 27, but in chapters 13 through 23 and then in 46 through 48. When you get to the punishment section here, um, there will be punishment of Israel, and you see that in Isaiah 5. Um, it says uh, in, in Isaiah 5, the vineyard of the Lord is destroyed. This is a lament. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Uh, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted in it choice, or planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? This is... Israel, the Lord's vineyard, not bearing the fruit that he has nurtured and um, pruned to yield the fruit. And so in verse 5, you see, uh, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
And uh, so you see the punishment that is promised there in Isaiah 5. You can see more in chapters 24 and 25 uh, all the way to 27. Uh, Right after, you see God lay out his judgment against the nations in chapters 13 through 23. So uh, as an Israelite, you're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm hearing this this, uh, prophecy of how sinful we are. Like, yeah, probably right. Isaiah moves on and says, and these nations are going to be judged and judged and judged. And so as an Israelite, you're sitting there listening and saying, okay, maybe he's moved on from our sin. Maybe we're going to be okay. And then chapter 24 comes around and it's like, actually, God's judgment's for the whole earth. And let's get more specific here in... um, is it 25? Um, it's it's 20, somewhere in 24 through 26. Um, God hones in and says, actually, Israel, you are going to be punished. You are the vineyard that's going to be destroyed um, as, as in chapter 5. But there's also grace. Uh, specifically, we think of... Um, so there are three terms. There's there's punishment, there's judgment, and there's discipline. All right? Punishment is a final decision. Punishment is what the wicked receive on the final day. Um, punishment is what um, Jesus took for those who are in him. Uh, judgment is often that, is associated with that. Um, but I think also we can, sometimes God through judgment actually grows his children by punishing the sin, but pruning and purifying the believer. So the believer is disciplined as the sin is judged. And that's what happens uh, for Judah in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 and 9. You see um, there Isaiah, this is where um, Isaiah is not writing in poetry, but in prose. Isaiah sent to King Ahaz, Um, You see there's a promise in chapter 8, the coming Assyrian invasion. And that Assyrian invasion, we realize, is not the final call. It's actually a gracious purifying of Israel, purging of wicked. And then when you get to Isaiah chapter 9, you have the famous prophecy, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And... um, and so there's always this return to this restoration for God's covenant people. Even Israel gets a promise of restoration, of grace through their judgment. Uh, that is a promise of restoration in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. And um, also in this punishment theme, before we move on to restoration, because restoration dominates a lot of our biblical thematic Um, content here in Isaiah. But before we move on to restoration, we see the day of judgment is also very much implied in the book of Isaiah. So flip over to the end to Isaiah 63, almost right there at the very end. Isaiah 63, verses 3 and 4. I was reading this, for some reason, I guess I was reading it today, Um, and verse 2 was really just a vivid image to me. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? 
I just envision white clothes. I don't know if they actually wore white clothes trading in a wine press, but imagine white clothes, somebody who's been smushing the grapes uh, trading in the wine press, just splattered in, in, in red, the, the bloodshed uh, that is soaked in their garments. That's the implication here. Um, Isaiah 63, now that, um, in verse 3, it's a reference to final judgment. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Verse 4 is a fascinating dichotomy. Vengeance and redemption. Um... Or, as you can see in the footnote, and if you have the ESV, is redemption. It could be the year of my redeemed. How is it that a day of vengeance is the same as a day of redemption? It's because God is just. And it's a God who has worked salvation, and a God who will welcome believers, and who will judge those who do not believe in Jesus, and did not accept his offer of righteousness. Thoughts on sin and punishment? We're going to spend more time on more detailed sin and punishment accusations against the nations and against Israel when we get to other books. Um, but Isaiah is um, ripe, if we're going to keep using vineyard imagery here, with, uh, with this restoration theme. So before we dive in here, and normally I do this at the beginning, but um, I'll, I want to just do a quick survey uh, before you, you know, your glance, your eyes glance too far down the page. Um, I'm curious when you think of the Book of Isaiah and prophecies about restoration and redemption, specifically things that uh, Jesus fulfilled. What are some of those that come to mind? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Which verse? What line stands out to you in that chapter? It. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's totally fine. That's totally and fine. I start up with he was pierced for Yep. Also in there is the fact that he was marred beyond resemblance. The fact that he wasn't, you know, especially good looking that we would be drawn to him. You know, those all that's woven in there. Um, good. What are some other things that you think of with the person, the fulfillment of, in Jesus? Unto you, a child is born. Mm-hmm. So what? Yep. When we just referenced in Isaiah nine, these are good. If you ever want to like memorize verses uh, that you can go back to, um, remember Isaiah nine. Like remember, we did some of this with Genesis and Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. We actually had some some verse uh, locations that we would memorize. Um, Isaiah nine is a good one for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Government shall be on his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah fifty three really starts at the end of chapter 52 at verse 13 and goes through uh, part of chapter 53. What about, what else? Yeah, Stump and Jesse. That's one that um, rings in my head often, and, and you can't get around it if you're reading the book of Matthew. So um, this is Isaiah 11, I think, verses, uh, it's verse 1, Isaiah 11 talks about this shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, 
maybe maybe you've not heard this phrase or maybe you haven't you like have no clue what's going on here jesse was david's father and so the promise was to the son of jesse to david that there would the, the kingdom would never the throne would never depart from his son from his descendants and so the at some point that tree that the thing was that was supposed to become this grand monarchy or um this throne this dynasty that's the word i'm looking for um got chopped down into a stump but god's promise had not failed first of all because uh they're the ones who broke the covenant they're the ones who walked away from him um god promises there's gonna be a shoot from this thing that you thought was dead this old stump that looked like it had been chopped down there's gonna be a shoot and from that comes all salvation and redemption that had been promised. And so that, that throne never did actually leave the line of David because it came back uh, in Christ. It had been reserved for Christ who whose kingdom will never end. Uh, and, and that also we find in, I believe there's a mention in Isaiah 9 or 6 about how there will be no end to his reign. Is, is that what you're thinking of something else? Okay. What do you got? Does going back to Jesse instead of David imply that we need someone better than David? That's a great question. I do not know. Yeah, I don't know why it's Stump of Jesse rather than Stump of David. I'm not going to get into that. I have theories, but I, they're not useful at this point. <laughs> Okay, let's jump into some of these restoration things. The, the remnant is one. Um, forgot to embolden that. This theme promises that God will preserve a group of his people from the catastrophic judgment of sin. And they're described in various terms, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, this is just a really interesting Hebrew point. Um, yes, okay, so in, in the ESV, it says, like, uh, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Um, melon, field of melons is what uh, this one that I copied um, came from. That looks like that's from uh, either the Longman book or from uh, Matt Bradley. Um, in the ESV, it's translated cucumber field. The truth is nobody has any clue what this word means. <laughs> it's just one of those words that got lost. So, um, yeah, just just pick cucumber field. I don't know. So, but the the point stands. Um, so it's this field, but there's there's a hut in it. There's there's something left. There's a remnant. There's a shelter in a vineyard, uh, and and you can let Hebrew um, poetry interpret line by line. It interprets itself because there's so many parallelisms, which you'll also see in last week's handout. Um, but. If it's a, a booth in a vineyard, it's like a lodge in a cucumber field, um, like a besieged city. Uh, the stump of a felled tree in Isaiah 6, which connects also to that stump of Jesse. Um, no, that is not 613. Yeah. Uh, so there's the, the the stump is used to describe the remnant. It's just they're described as a few olives in a treetop in Isaiah 17. They're described as a pole on a hilltop in Isaiah 30. The remnant is described uh, throughout in, in Isaiah 10 as truly leaning upon the Lord. That means the remnant are those who truly believe. 
truly understand and obey. Um, it's it's like a an initial sifting of the wheat from the chaff. Um, and, and sometimes the church goes through hard times, and the Lord uses that as an initial sifting of the wheat from the chaff. And we end up seeing, all right, the visible church and the membership in the church is supposed to represent the roles of heaven. And the church, you know, that's why you know, the, the leadership in the church is given the keys of the kingdom, um, of administering the word and the sacraments, and of church discipline is admitting people to the sacraments or, or keeping them from the sacraments, because this is supposed to reflect those who give true, credible professions of faith, who truly believe. And so the church membership is supposed to um, be a one-to-one um, identity with who's truly saved, but we know that we're imperfect and we can't truly judge people's hearts, so we're going to be deceived by people who seem like they're true believers. That's why church discipline is so important. Paul says you need to expel the immoral believer. The point is um, the remnant is a parallel to, is a, an analogy for the true believers within the church, the what we would call the invisible church, those who truly know and trust uh, the Lord. Uh, and this remnant will be fruitful. Unlike the vineyard that the Lord wanted to destroy because of their wild grapes, this is going to be a fruitful vineyard. Um, and they will bear good fruit, according to Isaiah 37. Thoughts on the remnant? Yeah. Okay, I'm giving a chance to... Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so, do we see a difference in how God treats, like, the remnants of Israel and, like, we would think about the church and Christians today, because like we're we're all aware of like martyrdom and like true Christians die in catastrophes. It's not like God has promised to save every one of us corporeally, yeah, yeah, uh, based on our faith. Um, uh, can you re-ask the heart of the question? I guess. Um, We talk about uh, the the true Israelites in the period of Israel's history that would have looked to Christ and uh, in through the writings of yeah, the prophets. Yeah, sure. Yep. Um, is it fair to say that some of them may have been caught up in these disasters? Oh, absolutely. Disasters? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. So. Um, I see how my explanation of the remnant would make it sound like every true believer was going to survive the exile and come back. That is not at all what I'm saying. Um, it is supposed to be a parallel that generally shows us um, how God preserves the core of his people. And so, yeah, absolutely. There were faithful believers who were killed in these battles as Assyria and, and Babylon came in. There were faithful believers who stayed uh, in exile either by um, a wrong choice or because um, they were in able, unable to come back. So, yeah, there's absolutely no promise of ease. And, in fact, the remnant who came back had a really hard time rebuilding uh, with plenty of opposition. So being a part of the remnant does not promise any sort of ease or, or um, comfort um, or, yeah. even, or even life. I guess also being part of the remnant doesn't necessarily... It's an impartial indicator of your faith. Like mm-hmm. you can't just say, draw a line and say everyone who died. And all yeah. These yes, were you're people. right. And 
Absolutely. No, that that's helpful. Yeah, and um, that is a helpful thing to maintain, or else I will end up in very scary territory trying to define like who exactly was saved and who wasn't. Yeah, that you're right. Yeah. Well, the New Testament has a very similar theme. At least it's similar in my head. Tell me if it doesn't seem similar to you. But I think it's in Second Peter. Um, Peter writes about how um, like our faith will be tested by fire, but proved as in more worth than gold. So there's just this constant theme of like you will suffer, and it will be good for you, um, and you'll be better for it in the long run. And then also just like looking further out at church history, um, it just seems like all the times that the churches persecuted the most or hated the most in society that's when it's the healthiest mm-hmm. like yeah and and when it's the popular thing that's when heresies kind of go crazy um, so I don't know if that's a continuation of the Old Testament theme but it's definitely it seems connected yeah to me yeah no I, it's consistent yes Christians die mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all the time, but like I just have a hard time wrapping my head around like um, I know in the Old Testament, like God was—I don't know if He was different, but I just know it was a different time then versus like uh, if I can say that, like versus now. It just—it's hard to like wrap your head around like that. There, but it's better. Like I forget what she said. It was sorry. I'm trying to think. Like we said, there would be fire, or there would be. Um, what was that? What, what you said? Like there will be fire and there will be. Um, it was in Peter you said. Oh yeah. Yeah. Trials. Is that and still, like, is that still mm-hmm. relevant to t- today? Yeah. Yeah. We absolutely and and it's not necessarily a literal fire. Sometimes it is. I mean, we've seen Christians over the last uh, couple thousand years who have been literally burned at the stake for their beliefs. Um, but those trials that the Lord sends us are like a fire that purifies gold. So that, you know, you take, you take gold and when you burn it, all the impurities come out. I mean, what you're left with is a purer gold. And that's what God does for his believers. He preserves them to the end. And they will prove in the end to be the remnant, those who have been uh, lovingly guided by God, even through trials, to be made more and more pure, to be made more and more like Christ. So that when we stand in judgment on that last day, we will be fully purified will be fully made right <clears throat> and and we will be the remnant that stands when all else is cast into destruction and this um, of course is not a fun sight to think about the destruction but it is a blessed thought to say uh, in Jesus I get to be one of those who is preserved um, because of what Jesus did so that's that's what it is to be in the remnant but it's a good kind of thing like, some, like we all have to kind of like Well, it's for the glory of God. And we don't really get to define how God is most glorified. Um, And so if God chooses, like, if if God knows that that's the best way for him to receive glory, then the rest of us say, praise the Lord, let's give glory to the Lord, because that is far better. Actually, you know, I had a, a, a pastor, a youth pastor one time back in North Carolina, who said something that I thought was a little bit crazy, but now I'm like, yeah, actually, that's, that's really makes sense. Um, he, he said that he was about to start a service with, with the youth or something. And, and he said, Lord, if I would say anything, if I have anything planned right now to say that would, that would defame your name, strike me dead right now. Right. So the glory of God is worth far more than another breath for us. 
Um, and we don't like that thought. Um, but once, once we are able to see that the glory of God is the first and foremost thing, then uh, we see that God will be glorified through judgment of sin, through the eradication of wicked, even if it means the death of those who had set themselves against him. Uh, and it's, again, it, it breaks our hearts because we don't want um, the, them to suffer and to die. But that's why we can see that the day of judgment is both of vengeance and of the redeemed. Um, because God's glory is magnified in that economy. Okay, um, let's push pause. We're obviously not going to get through this page tonight. Um, let's push pause there and we will resume with the Davidic kingdom next week. Uh, and we'll keep working through and we'll actually slow down and look at some of these servant songs. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, we'll get to some of the exciting specific uh, cross-references to the New Testament. Although I found this plenty exciting. But if you have time, go ahead and read through this back page here uh, this week and look at, look at how the New Testament takes these behold uh, phrases in Isaiah and how they're explained. Okay, let's pray. We praise you, Lord, for welcoming those who believe into restoration. We know that sin, punishment, restoration is a true paradigm for how you work. We praise you that you have not struck us immediately for our sin, but you have had patience. We praise you that though we are sinful, you have guided us and purified us through these trials. And so this, this punishment that our sins uh, have, we see in part, yet uh, they're just a glimpse of the fact that Jesus took the full punishment for our sins so that we might be restored to fellowship with you. And we praise you for that. We thank you for the writings of Isaiah. We thank you for his faithfulness to your uh, word as he um, taught and prophesied in Israel. We thank you that we get to read these words today. And we thank you for how you have protected these scriptures for us. Would we go uh, from your day today, grateful to have spent it with you, grateful to have heard from you, and thought about your word and given you praise. And would that define how we spend our next Monday through Saturday as we seek to return again next Sunday. Prepare us even now to come and worship you again next week. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.